Welcome to Barely Political. My name is Zachary Hagensmith, and today I'm your host. Today, we're gonna be talking about America. Bald eagles, baseball, freedom fries and ketchup, America. Over the past 50 years, America has mapped the human genome, cured smallpox, flown to the moon, seen declining infant mortality, seen longer lifespans, and has seen 10 Fast and the Furious movies, although the number is closer to 11 if you consider the Hobbs and Shaw spinoffs. But there's one area where America's performance is less than stellar, poverty. Over the past 50 years, United States poverty rates have more or less stagnated. In 1970, they were at 13%, today they're at 11%. But this trend isn't universal. In places like Belgium and Canada, where wages have gone up over this period of time, poverty has decreased. Indeed, in, today in the United States, 23% of US workers work in low paying jobs. Compare this to United Kingdom, where it's closer to 17%, Japan, where it's closer to 11%, and Italy, where it's at 5%. So why is America getting such a bum deal? And what can be done about it? Today's guest has some answers. Patricia A. McCoy is a force to be reckoned with in the world of financial services regulation. She's a professor of law at Boston College, and she has spent years researching the intersection of financial products, consumer welfare, and systemic risk. In a Texas Law Review article from 2002, she became one of the first experts to raise alarms about the dangers of subprime loans. McCoy has since testified before Congress and has been quoted in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, and finally, for the first time, in the Berkeley Political Review. But McCoy doesn't just talk about these topics, she's been a key player in shaping policy as well. In fact, from 2010 to 2011, she worked in Washington, D.C. at the Department of Treasury helping to form the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, and even served as its first assistant director of mortgage markets, where she oversaw all of the Bureau's mortgage policy initiatives, which, in the aftermath of the Great Recession, were kind of a big deal. Prior to that, she served on the Consumer Advisory Council of the Federal Reserve Board and later on the Advisory Council of Economic Inclusion of the FDIC. But even more impressive, McCoy is a proud Berkeley bear indeed, and this is not true. She has told me Berkeley is the greatest place on earth, and I'd like to reiterate that is completely false, but that doesn't make it any less true. She attended Berkeley Law School and served as the editor-in-chief of what today is the Berkeley Journal of Employment and Labor Law. McCoy is the author of four books, including The Subprime Virus, as well as The Upcoming and Economic Wellbeing for All, which is set to release by 2025. Uh, I think you guys are going to really like this one. Here it is. Here's Patricia McCoy. Thank you so much for being uh, here with us, uh, Professor Patricia McCoy of Boston College Law. Uh, it's wonderful to have you with us. Now, I understand you are working on a new book called And Economic Wellbeing for All, set to come out in 2025. Uh, I'm excited about this. It sounds uh, really fascinating. Could you uh, give uh, listeners a little bit of a brief summary, and then we can hop right into things? Absolutely. Absolutely. So... I have been concerned really all the way since my 20s about the precariousness of um, the, the economic health of many working American families. Um, it, this goes all the way back to when I worked at legal services after I got out of college and before I started law school at Berkeley. Um, and more recently, when I started delving into statistics, um, I found that depending on which indicator of financial health you looked at, often as many as half or more 
of American households are struggling financially. It's really breathtaking. Half of American working families don't make enough money for a living wage. And it took my breath away. And I thought, I really want to figure out why this has happened. How did we get into such severe economic deprivation? And how can we turn it around? Part of my concern is that it is politically destabilizing. And we, we certainly have witnessed that. You can see yeah. the J.D. Vance effect. <laughs> he, he, um, he, I think, accurately analyzed the, the economic frustrations of... Uh, in his book, Hillbilly Elegy, yes. Exactly, yeah. of, of, of people in Appalachia. Um, and then we saw how it translated in his own career to becoming part of MAGA. Um, and and so um, my book, while it's not about MAGA and not about um, democracy per se, what I'm trying to do is both stabilize the balance sheet of ordinary people and in the process create the conditions in which we have a more stable democracy. Oh, that's all so, so fascinating. I know one of the primary concerns, one of the primary ways you frame your book is how you sort of frame it by saying back in the 60s and 70s, we had these robust social support systems. I believe, uh, you know, the war on poverty, uh, other uh, LBJ programs, I think they the statistic is that 10 years after the war on poverty began in 1964, the share of Americans living in poverty was half of what it was in 1960 levels. So these were at least correlated with very strong trends in poverty. But a lot of that sort of shifted later on. Uh, so the Larry Summers of the world say that, you know, this is because, you know, globalization, uh, places in Michigan and the Rust Belt were getting deindustrialized. Is that the way you see it? Is what is behind sort of the decline of the social safety systems that prevented Americans from falling in poverty for a long time from the Great Depression through uh, LBJ? It is not one factor. It's, it's a number of factors. Uh, let, let me talk about some of the big ones. Um, first of all, you you talked about changes in labor markets. That That has been very real. Um, what what we saw in the 60s and 70s was the the height of unionization in the United States. Um, we had more people, more workers unionized um, by far than we have today. And with unionization came collective power to demand higher wages, better benefits, and better job protections. Um, you you had a union in your corner fighting to make sure that workers actually got paid for 40 hours of work a week. So they had enough hours. They had a decent hourly wage. They had health insurance. They had a pension. What we saw over the past 50 years or so was um, a body slam to unionization. And in the private sector, unionization has really dwindled. Um, and with it, 
all those protections um, faded away um, that, that were provided under the collective bargaining agreement. Um, so that was one thing. Um, globalization certainly played a role. The, the offshoring of American jobs um, hollowed out the old industrial centers, the, the Clevelands of the world and the Pittsburghs and Detroit. Um, and those were high quality jobs that migrated overseas or, or, or to Mexico. Um, so that was a big problem. So today we've ended up with labor markets that for semi-skilled workers and unskilled workers pays wages that are too low, does not offer enough hours. A lot of people are, are, can only get part-time work. They can't get a great 40 hour of work. Uh, I think if the statistic is like one in five working Americans is in a part time job right now. So it it's a very uh, relevant and very important uh, issue to just go, uh, as you're saying. That's right. Um, there there um, are few protections against firing and uh, fringe benefits for that group of workers, which is a large group. Um, are often non-existent. No, it's it's very serious stuff. Uh, we're talking about, as of 2019, it really affects young people. In 2019, there's a study that came out from, from Berkeley, from your alma mater, uh, Go Bears. One in five people between 17 through 21 lived in poverty sometime in the past decade. So this is something that's really affecting people of young age, people of who are already marginalized in uh, different racial groups, uh, black and brown households, especially. I, it's really uh, concerning. And, and part of this you mentioned, it has to do with the offloading of risk, yes. of financial risk from governments and businesses onto individual households. What, what does that mean? What does that look like in a, a real life setting? Right, right, right. Um, I'm going to preface my remarks by saying that in what I described, in many ways, there were two different worlds. There was the world for white Americans, and there was the world for Americans of color, particularly blacks. Um, and uh, what I'm going to describe in a moment is a world that looked much better for workers in the 60s and 70s than it does today. But that was not the reality for Blacks in 1970, in 1960s and 70s. Um, they often never had those benefits that whites had back then. And I just want to be very clear about that. But let me talk about the, the benefits that whites had in the 60s and 70s that were then um, shifted um, and, and taken away from them. So, so first of all, um, white Americans more often back then had traditional pensions. These, these were very precious things because they were the sort of pension that when somebody retired, they would get a fixed check every month for the rest of their lives. It wouldn't go up or down. Um, they could count on it and it would last until they died. Um, so it gave them an incredible amount of income security. Um, those sorts of traditional pensions, which we call 
defined benefit pensions have gone the way of the dinosaur. Um, they were very costly for private employers to offer. And so employers got out of the business of offering traditional pensions. For people today who are lucky enough to have retirement benefits, they are 401ks in which we all become investors and we, we, we do well if the market does well, we do badly if the market's doing poorly as it is right now. So all that risk has come onto people's shoulders. And furthermore, for low wage workers, they are not offered 401ks. Um, uh, 401ks is an affluent professional workers benefit that um, employers feel they don't have to offer to their low wage workers because those workers lack the bargaining power that professionals do. Um, so that's one way in which the risk has shifted. Another way is that um, unemployment insurance used to be much more generous. Uh, we have a situation in the United States where there are relatively few protections against being fired. Um, and there are fewer protections today than there were back in um, the 60s and 70s due to the demise of unions. Um, so employment insurance is really, really important to help people when they lose their jobs through no fault of their own, to help them make it over the hump. When I looked at the availability of unemployment insurance, um, in recent years, no more than about one quarter of unemployed workers even qualified for it. So three quarters of people who lo lose their jobs, if they applied for unemployment insurance, they'd get the response, you're not eligible. Mm -hmm. You get zero, which is a scary position to be in. So that's another example of the risk shift. And, and to add on to that, there's also... Uh... To, to supplement that, I suppose, there are lots of work requirements that are attached to unemployment insurance. And if the economy is contracted like it was in 2008 or recently in 2020, it becomes really you can't be working when there aren't any jobs. It makes the availability of that aid when it's contingent on that uh, just raises a lot of conflicting issues. It absolutely does. You put your finger on it and it. One of the corollaries of that is if somebody, a low wage worker who lost their job, if if to get onto unemployment insurance or to keep it, they get another job, they often are pushed back into another low wage job. So it reduces their ability to try to earn a better income. They have to take the first job that they, they um, the first offer that they get. That's not a good position to be in. Mm -hmm. It's it's like um, a recent book came out by Matthew Desmond, and he sort of compares this to uh, this uh, these anti-poverty programs being turned into something like dialysis, a treatment designed to make uh, poverty less lethal, not to make it disappear. So we have programs designed uh, in the same way uh, an insurance, uh, unemployment insurance is designed to maybe reduce the cost of being unemployed, but not to fully rid 
uh, people who are unemployed of the potential, uh, you know, issues that come with that, of the potential poverty. And of course, there are reasonable concerns to be had with labor market, making sure there are incentives for people to stay employed, to get jobs, because we need that as a country. But it still raises uh, a lot of uh, just co conflicts of interest, you might almost say. Uh, go going off this, though, uh, so we've identified uh, some of these problems that uh, you financial risk is being transferred from government to business through sort of the squeezing of these programs. It's it's almost like a leaky bucket in some comparisons when you look at things like TAMF, where a lot of money that is supposed to go to uh, those afflicted by poverty doesn't really go to them. It goes to uh, other programs, uh, crisis pregnancy centers, uh, uh, workshops that don't really benefit the poor. So what what then, getting into sort of uh, the solution section of your book, what is sort of the potential way out of this fix we have ourselves in? Let me start with unemployment insurance, um, mm -hmm. since we just talked about that. Right now, unemployment insurance, it, it nominally is a federal program, and um, but the federal government delegated the administration of, of unemployment insurance to the states, and much of the funding is provided by employers. So employers pressure the states to keep premiums low and threaten to pull their factories out of states where the premiums are, are not low. Um, so so there, there's sort of a conspiracy going on mm -hmm. uh, to, to keep the benefits low. What I would do is transfer the funding and administration of unemployment to the federal government so that we remove this race to the bottom among states um, who are competing to keep employers within their, their borders. Um, once we have one uniform nationwide program, the chance of being able to really provide meaningful benefits and extend them to all these people who are being excluded right now is much greater. Um, I, th I think I think that really is the key. Um, I I propose who needs to be covered, which which is almost all employees, um, and and thinking about what is the right level to set the benefits at. It's not going to be a hundred percent of wages, but it's going to be enough to cover basic living costs. Um, in my book. I identified five what I call milestones that each working family should be able to aspire to and, and uh, in order to enjoy economic well-being. And for each of those, I am looking at policy solutions. Um, let me just list the five. So yes, the first, go for it, please. Yeah, yeah. The first one is making ends meet just getting through the month, just paying your bills. Um, and uh, we we can talk in a few minutes about the solutions for that, but okay. mm -hmm. that's where we really, we will really tackle the question of employment insecurity. Um, the second one is for families who want to, being able to buy a home. Um, home ownership's not for everybody. But it turns out that home ownership for 
most families is the single biggest form of accumulating wealth. So we have to take it really seriously. The third milestone is being able to send your kids to college, being able to pay for their college. Uh, I really appreciate that because I came from a family that was a very modest means. And when I, this is going to make you upset, Zachary, <laughs> but when I went to Berkeley, I started in fall 1980, the annual tuition for um, UC Berkeley Law School was $500 a year. $500? $500. And, <laughs> and that it was supported by the state of California. Mm -hmm. It was almost completely subsidized. Um, I think it's important for states to return to the role of subsidizing the bachelor's degree through, through state universities and colleges. It's unacceptable for working families to have to raise um, $100,000 or more for each of their children for them to get a BA. Um, very quickly, the last last two milestones are covering your health care expenses, which is basically health insurance and being able to pay for that, and then finally affording retirement. Oh, that is very uh, encompassing. It really is a strong breath to all of those. Now, I, I know we want to go into all of these individually, if time permits. Uh, before we do, though, I'd I like to also circle back to why not only are why these aren't provided for yet, yeah, we've already discussed some of the ways uh, this sort of uh, leaky bucket effect, uh, maybe a way ways in which people certain people benefit from, I guess you could call this an exploitation of uh, disinvestment of universities or the way homeowners benefit from suppressing, uh, you know, affordable housing in their neighborhood by boosting their costs. Uh, but aren't there agencies to do this? Now you, I, I have to mention this since we have you, you were one of the architects of uh, the Consumer Financial Pro uh, Protection Bureau, the CFPB. Why aren't why don't uh organizations like the cfpb like the sec uh other uh regulatory bodies i suppose HUD, uh don't ensure these already and we're going to get to how they can in the future so uh i i think the answer is uh yes we have many many agencies um, who touch on the economic well-being of american families um, in some cases, they lack the jurisdiction um, or the mission. So, for example, my old agency, the uh, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, does not have the jurisdiction to pay social insurance to families to, to actually help improve their cash situation. It does an incredible job of consumer protection, protecting people when they take out loans mortgages, student loans, et cetera. Um, but its mission, its statutory mission is not to provide welfare benefits or unemployment benefits or help subsidize the cost of health insurance, et cetera. Um, in other cases, we, we do have agencies that are responsible for those functions, but um, the statutes 
over time have become far less generous. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so the statutory benefits that the agencies are allowed to issue are really stingy compared to what they were allowed to issue 50 years ago. I see. Thank you. All right. So let's tackle these uh, five principles one by one. So starting with affordability, uh, with being able to afford, um, we call them consumer goods. Uh, if, is that a nice way of putting it? Uh, yeah, I, I just I just mm -hmm. say base, basic living costs. Basic living costs. Uh, what need, what policy, what is the, your policy wish list to help sort of achieve this? We've touched on unemployment insurance. Uh, are there other ways uh, beyond expanding unemployment insurance insurance to help achieve achieve broad-based affordability for basic goods for uh, the majority of households? Right. So I, I see three levers to help address this issue. Mm -hmm. uh, ba basically, it comes down to the problem of do people make enough money to be able to to um, cover ordinary living expenses? We're not talking about luxuries. We're just talking about mm -hmm. base, the basics of getting through the month. Food, um, clothing, the, yeah. Food, clothing, rent. Um, right. Um, etc. And and so the the first thing is uh, to ensure that that workers make a living wage um, that that wage levels are high enough um, so that they actually are 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 designed to cover basic living expenses. Mm -hmm. um, and again, um, fifty to fifty five percent of families do not make a living wage right now. Um, so what that indicates is that we need to increase the minimum wage. A few states have been very proactive, but um, it's a state decision right now um, for the most part. What we need to do is raise the national minimum wage to the level of a, of a living wage in every state. Mm -hmm. Um, the second, the second part of that equation is job insecurity. Obviously, if yeah. you lose your job, then you know all bets are off, and so so we return to um, having a more robust unemployment insurance program. Uh, the last thing is that we need to have um, to really focus on helping these families accumulate small amounts of savings. Um, mm -hmm. our, it's very interesting. The United States subsidizes savings programs that affluent Americans use a lot. For example, 401k mm -hmm. plans are yeah. subsidized. Um, uh, education savings plans for um, future college students are subsidized. But these are programs and savings plans that largely more affluent people take advantage of and uh, poorer families do not. Um, when I looked at the question, does the United States provide the same subsidies to families just to come up with emergency savings, maybe of $2,000? The answer is no. No. It's unbelievable. It's, yeah. It's, 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 it, it gobsmacks me. 
And it's it's so important to have those emergency savings. It's it's incredible. I I think the statistic, my my notes are a little smeared here. It's raining. But I think it's one in 10 households are unbanked. Uh, It might be lower than that. But, uh, you know, this this also ties into how it, it opens that when banks, when established banks refuse to offer small dollar loans, not because out of risk concerns, but out of profit concerns, it forces all these households to go to uh, ca- the check cashing industry, which we, uh, which in common parlance is called a predatory lending industry. Uh, and they benefit from this. Uh, I believe Wells Fargo and uh, JP Morgan Chase, you know, uh, fund and bankroll some of these agencies like Advanced America and Cash America. So this ties in both into the ways of how we can reduce poverty and why poverty still persists. Uh, I think it was James Baldwin who said it is incredibly expensive to be poor. But there's there's a lot more than uh, affordability. You also mentioned housing is a massive issue. And <laughs> coming from coming from Berkeley, I don't. It's, yes. It might be, be a while since you've been here, but housing is a massive issue uh, up here in California, really along the entire West Coast. What is going wrong and how can that be corrected? It's a a really complicated question, Mm -hmm. but um, earlier you mentioned zoning restrictions and the high cost of housing. Um, uh, We can do a lot more to tackle those problems. Um, Localities and states have a really important responsibility to um, reduce zoning restrictions that make it impossible to build multifamily housing. Um, And when I talk about multifamily housing, sometimes it's rental, but sometimes it could be condos for sale. Um, And uh, it seems to me that the entry level point for a lot of people these days to buy a home is to buy a condo. So Mm. if we relax zoning restrictions to allow building more condos, that will be very, very important. Um, We also need to um, allow for greater density of housing, of of, uh, multi-story housing um, that might be, let's say, 10 stories so that you can have many more households on a particular um, plot of land than Mm. we would certainly have with a single family home. Um, so, so these are really important initial reforms. It's not the end of the story. And and why why aren't these uh, reforms in place? Is this just nimbyism gone uh, awry? It, uh, are there other reasons why this uh, doesn't quite exist now, where we don't have multifamily, multi-story condo units uh, more available? Nimbyism is a big problem. Um, we also have to have developers able to build and willing to build. The willing is about profitability and mm-hmm. uh, and how big of a zoning fight will they have on their hands. Um, developers can encounter a lot of litigation costs if there's a lot of public opposition to a new project that they've proposed. Um, in addition, they have to have financing. This is a period right now where financing is tough for developers. Uh, interest rates are going up. And with the events of the past week or so with with the banking system, (laughs) very jittery, 
Um, For I, the record, I, we're talking, uh, this might be published in a couple of weeks or so, but uh, right now we're talking in Miss Silicon Valley Bank and Credit Suisse and First Republic all going down and mergers are happening left and right. Uh, please continue, though. Yeah. Yes, yes, exactly. Well, that is making bank lenders very, very jittery about who they will lend to. Um, so that that does not help the cause of affordable housing at all. Um also, uh, we need to think more creatively about how to assist cash-strapped families to be able to afford to buy a home. Um, they have to be able to afford the mortgage payments, which usually means that they're going to start out with a, a relatively small home um, to get their foothold in the market and build equity in that home, and then they can trade up. Um, but for a lot of these families, they don't have the down payment. So down payment assistance by the government or by nonprofits is a game changer in helping families um, gain home ownership. Uh, a lot of the families actually can afford the mortgage for a modest home, um, it will be no more expensive than their rent because rents are high too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but but the problem is amassing the down payment. And, and that, so can, that when, can take years. And when, when you're talking about government involvement in that, does that take the form of a loan? Does that take the form of uh, disbursement? Uh, what does that look like in your ideal vision? Uh, there, there are different models for it, but but the two that intrigue me most, um, sometimes it's a cash grant. It's, it's simply mm -hmm. what we would call a gift um, and does not have to be repaid. Other times it is a an interest-free loan um, that is in a fixed amount. Let's say if, if the down payment is $40,000, at the closing, there will be a second loan to the home buyer, which is for the down payment of $40,000. Um, and it will be zero interest. The family will not have to make monthly payments. At the time the house is sold, the loan will be paid back. Um, and, and so the, the payback will be out of the eventual sales proceeds of the loan. Um, of the house, but that could be a good number of years from now. Um, the average family stays in a house seven years. Mm -hmm. That's no, that really, that's really uh, interesting. I know uh, in Canada, uh, I, I believe something similar, at least in terms of uh, interest-free loans, is a lot more common than it is in the United States. They actually give uh, interest-free college loans, at least. In uh, British Columbia, I've had friends uh, up in UBC in Vancouver who are able to afford the entire education without any interest on it through lending. So uh, that ties in really nicely to what <laughs> I wanted to discuss next. Uh, with So your sort of third tenant of uh, the sort of solution process to helping reduce poverty uh, in America is making college education affordable. Now, I have a two-part question. Why why specifically college education? I'm I'm curious and not necessarily uh 
secondary or uh, primary uh, school is that why the college education takes uh, such priority over that. And secondly, uh, what where college education, where making college education affordable uh, can go to. Right. So I place a very high priority on college education for families and students who want a college education. Um, I'm not saying that it's necessary to um, to um, be part of our society um, and, and certainly not, not necessary to be a respected, productive member of society, but it makes a huge difference mm -hmm. in people's economic well-being. If you look at the statistics, it is indisputable that earning the BA raises somebody's future earnings prospects for the rest of their life on average and beyond well economic well-being uh, your socio-emotional personal what have you well-being in terms of suicide rates between people who attend college and people who don't they're significantly a lot higher for those who don't attend college which uh I believe a comedian once said it should be on like every college brochure you receive. Uh, it really incentivizes you a little bit more, I suppose. Uh, going into more of uh, the ways uh, college education uh, can be improved. You, we mentioned before the divestment uh, of public education. You mentioned you went to Berkeley, uh, Berkeley Law uh, for five hundred dollars a month back in the eighties, which is here. A year, a year, my bad, a year, which is insane, uh, which is crazy. Uh, great, great, but uh, <laughs> a world away from what we have now. I, I was actually just watching a documentary by, uh, I think his name is Robert Winehouse, uh, a pretty respected documentarian called At Berkeley, uh, filmed in 2013. And you see the inside negotiations of uh, college administrators talking about reducing resources, about... Uh, reducing programs, closing programs, telling people whose like parents are getting laid off because of the re uh, recession that uh, you know you just need to work a little bit harder, you get like a third job, which is you know a, a lot to tell uh, any, any student, of course. Uh, so going off this, is this just uh, is this just divestment? Is this is there more to it? And what can uh, the future look like? To, to bring uh, Berkeley Law costs back to $500. Right. So it is invest disinvestment, mm -hmm. plain and simple. Um, I think it's really, really important that we focus on families who either will not send their children to college if their children have to go heavily into debt mm -hmm. or um, will really struggle with the debt load um, if student loans are the only way to get through college. Um, so in, in my mind, again, for higher income families, it's entirely reasonable to expect them to pay higher tuition Mm -hmm. for them to subsidize um, their own um, living expenses for the, for their college students, um, children. But for um, students from 
families of more modest income, it really holds them back for the rest of their lives if they graduate from college with a debt load of anywhere from $30,000 to $100,000 on debt, which, by the way, cannot be resolved through bankruptcy. That stays with you your entire life in the United States. That's absolutely right. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a very narrow exception. A few people can get bankruptcy, but almost almost nobody manages to pull that off. Um, And so this is this is debt that is hanging over people for years. Um, And uh, and some people get into their 50s and they still haven't paid off their student loans that 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 holds them back from marrying, from having children, from buying a home so that they can build wealth for saving for retirement. It's it's a terribly destabilizing force for economic well-being for for these particular graduates. Um, and so so I propose that um, taxpayers pony up mm-hmm. and that the states provide subsidized tuition um, for students from these families. Um, I really push back against the idea that the way that these families should finance their children's college education is through student loans. That is way too risky. It's way too costly. And it is putting um, putting an albatross around the neck of of lower income families. That is just unfair. Uh, no, uh, it's something that I, I don't think I know anybody, maybe a handful of people here at Berkeley, which is a public school that don't have uh, college loans. Uh, is there anything to be said regarding how colleges currently allocate their money? I believe uh you know robert reich teaches here and the first day of his class he goes in and he shows you a pay scale of everybody uh uc berkeley and i believe the highest paid person is like the basketball or football coach and the admin is short closely behind uh is there any way of saying like maybe schools should budget differently maybe we don't need to be giving a million dollars for a football coach who can't get berkeley to win as often as we should be winning (laughs) <laughs> or uh, is that a bit of a red herring for you? Um, I'm not sure that it's a red herring. I'm, I'm sure that we could identify costs. And mm-hmm. I would prefer a world in which um, football and basketball coaches are, are not by far the best paid employees. Um, um, but that's not the world we live in. Um and uh, we used to have a conversation also saying that um, universities had what we called an edifice complex in that they were <laughs> building, they were building too, too many shiny new buildings. Uh, there may have been a time where that was a big problem, but I also think at some point university buildings get worn out. If you had seen the UC Berkeley Law Building when I went there, it was looking pretty sorry, and it it did need re- renovations, mm. um, and eventually it got them. No, it, it, it's a very nice building right now. We, it's it has a very its own nice library. Building. Yeah, it's it's yeah. great. Um, um, and 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 those were those were mm-hmm. 
badly needed. There, there was Certainly. uh, deferred maintenance, and so, so we have to be mindful that there are there are capital costs. Um, uh, what what I really think has hap happened is that the amount of dollar support paid by the states to state universities has plummeted. So the problem is less on the cost side. The problem is on the revenue side. Mm -hmm. And the revenue right now that is being paid basically by the federal government in the form of student loans yeah. uh, needs, needs to be shifted to taxpayers in the form of subsidized tuitions. Uh, that's super. And I, I know we're a little pressed for time right now, but I'd also love to discuss your ideas regarding health and retirement policy solutions or policy improvements. Uh, so to begin with healthcare, that is uh, an issue the U.S. has been struggling with for a long time. Uh, even uh, FDR couldn't really do a lot to expand healthcare during the Great New Deal. He was blocked uh LBJ made some improvements in the 60s, uh, founded a Medicaid, Medicare. What's next? What should be the next steps for American policymakers? We're actually at a really fascinating juncture in the United States on um, health finance because of Obamacare. Mm -hmm. Obamacare really made a difference. Today, Anybody who wants a really good health insurance policy, so it's a high quality policy, it has good coverage, um, can either get it through their employer if they work for a large employer, or they can get it through healthcare.gov, which is the Affordable Care Act exchange. The issue that we're struggling with now is can people afford the premiums for these policies? Um, if you look at the what I call the Obamacare market, um, and I do that lovingly, and it's not. It, uh, I, I'm a big supporter of of the Affordable Care Act. Um, there are still a lot of households who are paying high deductibles and high co-payments. Um, and these can go as high, in my experience, as $7,000 a year, which is a lot of money. This is on top of the premiums that, that the families pay. And again, um, the premiums for Obamacare policies can be high. Lower income families can get subsidies towards those, uh, but there's still a lot of middle income and even upper middle income families that are struggling because the subsidies are non-existent or not very generous. Um, and so I, I think right now what we're struggling with is an affordability issue. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, we're going to have to really think about at least for lower income families, making sure that they are getting the health care they need because their um, co-payments and deductibles are manageable. Mm -hmm. And I, so much to be said about that, but I want to, I want to move on before uh, we run out of time to discuss uh, your ideas regarding retirement. Retirement is something that is 
incredibly important and something that most people do not like to think about. What can be done to improve our current social security safety net? Where where does it fall short? Uh, where would you like to see things headed? Um, I think I think the number one priority is social security, as 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 you have just flagged. Um, Social Security is an incredibly important program because it is today's traditional pension. We we no longer have employers paying the old-fashioned traditional pension. Um, uh, Instead, the only thing that looks like that is Social Security. It, It pays a monthly check to most retirees. That check is fixed in amount, it is reliable, and a real asset of Social Security is that it is inflation adjusted, so it will go up with inflation. The thing that we're worried about right now is the solvency of Social Security. Um, uh, The baby boomers are retiring, I'm one of them, at some point (laughs) I will retire too, Um, and uh, that's a very large cohort of people to be drawing down social security funds. Um, the the younger generations are basically paying the social security checks of baby boomers. Um, the problem is that the social security trust fund uh, will eventually have too little money to make every um, every month's payroll, let me put it that way, in terms yeah. of paying Social Security checks. Um, a really important way of fixing that problem is assessing Social Security payroll taxes on affluent people. Right now, um, the Social Security taxes that people pay stop being assessed at a certain amount of income, and it's around $130,000 or $140,000 a year Mm -hmm. this year. Um, So anybody who pays more than that, the excess above, let's say $140,000, is not taxed for Social Security. Um, And we need to start doing that. Um, We need to start saying to anybody, you're going to pay Social Security taxes on your entire income. If you make $400,000 a year, you're going to pay it on the full $400,000. That will make a big difference in the funding of Social Security. We just have to find the political will. That's super. That's well. It's, it's been terrific talking. Uh, it's been uh, fascinating. I hope you can come back to Berkeley someday and look at your alma mater in the light of 2023 or 2024. Uh, but regardless, uh, I encourage everybody to pre-order your new book, uh, And Economic Well-Being for All, which is scheduled to come out by 2025 uh, through University of California Press. So stay on the lookout for that. Uh, It's been great having you here, Patricia. It's been such a pleasure. And um, you've brought back such fond memories of Berkeley. So thank you. Uh, Super. Uh, See you later. Uh, Bye-bye. I got the hungry for you. Patricia McCoy's new book, And Economic Wellbeing for All, will be available by 2025 through the University of California Press. So stay tuned on that one. 
Also, a quick correction, at one point I stated, one in 10 American households are unbanked. It's actually closer to one in 20. According to the FDIC, 4.5% of US households are unbanked. Hope that clears things up. I've been Zachary Hagensmith. Thank you all so much for listening. Congress for your love and I'm waiting in your welfare line.